As I have <clears throat> proceeded through my ministry over the years in uh, various places and churches and Bible studies at home and so on and so forth, there's a characteristic that people kind of look for in uh, my style and what I do. And one of those things is they pay attention to when I bring the Bible up and they look at the Bible and they see all these tabs in there. That's an indication of the work that we're going to be doing. So we're going to go through this. And so there's work for all of us to do. So I uh, sort of cut this list down by about a a third. So (laughs) trying to be sensitive to time. As I was preparing, Psalm 57 has been on my heart all week long. Particularly one verse, but I'd like to read to you. Be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me. For my soul trusteth in thee, yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. I will cry unto God most high, unto God that performeth all things for me, and he shall send from heaven and save me from the reproach of him that would swallow me up, Selah. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. My soul is among lions, and I lie even among them that are set on fire, even the sons of men, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. And also in... Matthew 24, verse 35, the words of Jesus, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Let's pray. Father, you have called us to yourself, and you have called us into your grace and peace. As the apostle says, to the, to the knowledge of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us this morning toward that end, through the deep study of your word. Jesus prayed... Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And your truth provides us with life. We need to be built up in our faith, encouraged and strengthened into the things of the Lord. So my prayer is that you, you, Lord, will maximize this opportunity to come before you and study your word, and that we all will throw ourselves into this hour with holy boldness to learn of you. In Jesus' name I pray. I love how the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter greet the churches. And so, I greet you, church, this day, particularly on this occasion of my first time to unfold the word of the Lord to you. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you, my brethren, in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That's sort of my focus throughout my ministry and throughout my life. And I'd like to stay there. And I'd also like to express that it is literally my my joy, my honor, my privilege to be given the opportunity to look at the Word and to proclaim it to His people. So today we're going to do something perhaps a little different in a different way. I don't know if you folks are familiar with that or not, but I have mentioned a few times throughout um, 
the course of Sunday school and Wednesday evening prayer service and Bible study, this notion that's called a chiastic structure or a chiasm. And that's drilled down in the way the Hebrew language and the authors of the Bible utilized this literary device to express God's word. Has anybody ever heard of that before? So it is kind of a deep dive, but it speaks to language. Um, The first page of the handout I gave is a little picture. It's kind of interesting. 4,000 years later, we're back to the same language. There's an upper picture of, of early writings through tombs and, and pyramids and caves. It's a cuneiform sort of language that's pictorial in notion. And now in modern days, we have these things called the language of emojis on our phone. So it's just an expression of language. And in a way, when we look at the Bible and we live our lives we realize that there are no two languages are exactly alike. I have an example on the uh, uh, late addition to the handout last night. The fact that no two languages are alike makes the process of translating more complicated than most people think. One of the churches I've served in has a small Spanish contingency in there, and they speak broken English, but mostly Spanish. And I wish I was fluent in language and can communicate with them, but that's an example. Even a simple language like Spanish, um, a Romance language, um, has an alphabet similar to ours and grammatical rules, but even then, the way they convey their syntax and their grammar and their verbs are different. So some people think that all you have to do when making a translation is simply to define each word and string together all the individual word meanings. Reminds me of an example when I was in a service and uh, deployed to um, Korea for, for about uh, nine months. Couldn't speak Korean. Most of the Koreans there couldn't speak English. And the principles of work. It doesn't matter how loud or how slow you speak in a different language, they still don't understand it. So this would, of course, um, assume that if we just string all the words together and we pull out individual word meanings, that would assume that the source language, in the Bible's case, Greek or Hebrew, and there's small pieces in the Old Testament of Aramaic, and the receptor language, such as English or Spanish, or exactly alike. That's not true. Life could be so easy. In fact, no two languages are exactly alike. For example, turning your Bibles to Matthew 17, verse 18. It's the the story from Jesus of him healing a demon-possessed boy. If someone has that, would you please read that? Matthew 17, 18. That makes sense to us. It's English. It's a language we're familiar with. But the word-for-word English rendition I supplied for you in that second handout, written below in a transliteration of the Greek. So if we were to technically take a word-for-word literal translation of that phrase, not can't speak Greek, 
I don't even, it's hard for me to recognize it, but I wrote it in there. Essentially, a word-for-word translation of the Greek um, Bible in that passage would basically say, and rebuked it, the Jesus, and came out from him, the demon, and was healed, the boy, from the hour that. Right. And the thing is, why I like the King James is it's as close as possible to the original book language, as close as possible to the Greek and the Hebrew, mm-hmm. and the word order and all that. It, it doesn't fit totally exactly because it can't do that, but it uh, fits as close as possible, as literal as possible. And, and you can have fit pretty close, even mm-hmm. though you can't fit close exactly with the Yes, I agree, and I don't, uh, I don't challenge that. Uh, my point in using the example is just to simply show that all languages are different, and they differ in their structure, they differ in their grammar, their syntax, and the way to convey. And I'm absolutely on board with the best um, translation that we have, is a formal word-for-word literal translation, and we don't change that. So, today, there's um, a phrase that I use all the time when I approach the Bible, and I I, uh, encourage others to do the same. Content without context has no meaning. So, if if we read anything, and we just look at the content, unless we understand the context, and that's familiar, I'm sure, to all of us here, that we look at the Bible in its entirety and we try to establish the context. Otherwise, it has no meaning. So our objective is to understand how considering the source languages of the Bible, insofar as looking at the literary structure of the text and how is it arranged to convey and communicate ideas within that culture's language, can enhance our understanding of the meaning and focus of the passage. One of the guiding principles in Scripture forms this little purpose statement that I have for us as believers and for anybody, really, when they look at the Bible. The theological nature of the text must capture our primary attention. What do I mean by that? If we just say, what does theological mean? Or what does the word theology mean? It's a Greek term, theos, meaning God, ology, meaning the study of. So theology or theological Nature means we're looking at the study of God. We're trying to discover what he has to say to us in his word. So there's an example, the role of prophets and prophecy in Scripture. The biblical prophecies we find throughout the Bible, from a theological perspective, are more interested in revealing God than in revealing the future. There's a lot of people out there that are into... uh, prophecy and predicting prophecy, when this is going to happen, when that is going to happen. Well, frankly, it only happens when God says so, not when man says so. So we have to drive ourselves into looking at the Bible that way. The job of the prophets was essentially to herald God's word, to reveal God in his word. We see stated in Jeremiah 1.4, 
Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, God was calling Jeremiah into his service, not primarily to reveal events, which in fact he did, but to reveal his truth for the people, using the foreboding coming events as a tool to get the people's attention as to the seriousness of the condition. But our human tendency is not to think theologically. We generally think about trying to understand these things in light of ourselves or in our own natural terms. It's part of our nature. Take events, for example. Most people just try to reconstruct them in their mind. For example, was creation in three actual days? Or I've been in studies where people say, well, what about the dinosaurs? How old were the dinosaurs? And what's that got to do? Cynthia and I conducted a Bible study in our house, and we did the book of Genesis. It took us over three years to get through the book. There's a lot in there. Um, Some people get stuck on the word Nephilim and giants in the land. So were there real giants in the land? Or in the case of the, the disciples, what were they concerned about? They always asked Jesus, well, when is the end going to come? Recall what Jesus said to them about the end to come. He said, only the Father knows. He always pointed back to theology, the study of God and what his Father was doing. We should take, we should take that example ourselves. Um, So the lesson from Jesus in this section is that we are not focusing on the main purpose of the text when we try to construct what the end times will look like. Our true focus is to seek understanding of the revelation of God, which calls for belief and faith. I think I'm sort of um, preaching to the choir on that point. So again, I highlighted, therefore, understanding the theological nature What the text is saying about God must have our primary attention. Now, I don't say that casually. The Bible itself will provide affirmation of that. For example, we see see this concept in the Bible in the book of Job, this concept of knowing about God versus actually knowing God. There's a lot of people that know about God but they don't really know God. Job answers God with these words in chapter 42, verses 3 to 6. Job says, Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. And then... He says, almost as if he's just wrapping it up in a nice little package, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Then he says, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. How do we apply that? Hearing of the ear is an example of knowing about God. And Job willingly, through his interaction through the entire book, came to realize that. And then he says, mine eye seeth thee is actually knowing God. And so as believers, we are all called to be students of the Bible. Tim? He says that after all these horrible things happen to him. Yes. 
Yes. So what's interesting to that point, he realized through all this interaction with him, and we know that book opens with the statement that Job was, the right, was a righteous man. And a lot of people look at it and say, well, why is God making him suffer if he's a righteous man? Well, the fact of the matter is, and it took that entire book and all his activities and events and interactions to realize that he's a broken human vessel. There's nothing righteous inside of him. If it were, it would be like a word picture. It's like taking a jar of jelly beans. Remember our ex-president Ronald Reagan loved jelly beans? He kept a jar of jelly beans. Like dipping your hand into the jar of jelly beans and expecting to take out milk duds. You can't take out that which is not there. So we cannot dip into ourselves and pull out our own righteousness because it has to be placed there by God himself. Yes. Yes. Good point. So, moving along, our objective today is to try to understand a little bit more about the Hebrew language, primarily how this language uses certain literary structures and devices to communicate the thoughts and intention of the author of Scripture. It's not an easy topic. I don't expect anybody to get it right away. I've been looking at this for years. Um, it's a tough subject, but it's really revealing when you begin to see these things. And so I apologize for the thick handout, but it's not easy subject to convey just verbally. We all need pictures. So one of the devices that the Hebrew language uses are called chiasms or chiastic structure. By definition, a chiasm is a literary structure where parallel elements correspond in an inverted order. And they use our alphabet, for example, the, 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 in your handout on page two, I think, they use our alphabet, A, B, C, C, B, A. So it's sort of a, a mirror image that's reflecting in reverse order. You start off with a statement, and then you end in that structure with the same statement, and it builds to the center. So another way to describe it is a sequence of ideas that's presented and then repeated in reverse order. The result, like I said, is a mirror effect as the ideas are reflected back to us in a passage. And each idea is connected to its reflection by a repeated word, often in related form. Now we might pause for a second to qualify this, why is the Hebrew language like that? Why is it so different? The Hebrew alphabet is only 22 letters. Our alphabet is 26. Anybody take a stab, willing to take a stab as why? We use these things. Back in the day, most people were illiterate. They couldn't read, they couldn't write. There was a shortage of writing materials, so all that stuff actually um, was with the educated or, or um, the rabbis, the clergy, the elders, the priests, so on and so forth, and they read from the scrolls, and one of their methods to get people to understand is to repeat a structure so they could go in their mind 
and learn it without being able to read it. Remember, uh, in sometimes in, uh, I don't know if they still do it in school now. Who knows what they do in schools now? But when I was a kid, they would give us little mnemonics or little, you know, numerical or sort of acronyms, sort of like one, two, buckle my shoe, three, four, close the door, five, six, pick up sticks, seven, eight, don't be late, nine, ten, do it again. So that was able for us to learn before we, we had a command of the language so that we could read it and write it and convey ideas. Does that make sense? So it's an intriguing form that, they, that God had the Hebrews develop here. So the term chiasm actually comes from the Greek letter chi, which looks like our letter X. They're also called ring structures. The most simple uh, structure is the structure ABBA, and it refers to two ideas, one idea A, one idea B, repeated in reverse order, B and A. Often, and this is where it gets interesting in the Bible, the chiasm adds another idea right in the center of the structure. For example, A, B, X, B, A. So in that structure, two ideas A and B are repeated in reverse order, but a third idea is inserted before the repetition. Does that make sense? You can keep this hand out, or you can throw it away if you want, but I find it helpful. You know, men are generally visual people, so they, we like pictures. Pictures worth a thousand words. So by virtue of the center position, the insertion in, in a structure A, B, X, B, A is emphasized. And in Scripture, it usually indicates the central point of the passage. Some chiasms are quite simple. For example, we have a very common saying today, for example, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. That's a simple chiasm. It's, a, it's an idea A, and then it's read again, B, in reverse order. The words going and tough are repeated in the second half of the structure. Another example of this chiasm is something that Benjamin Franklin used to use. By failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. That's a simple chiastic structure. Now, there are many, many chiasms, and often there are more complex, and they even span entire poems. In Hebrew, the Hebrew language is primarily a poetic structure language, and so it lends themselves to these structures easily in poetry to convey these ideas. There's a simple chiasm that Jesus used in the, uses in the New Testament. It's found in Mark 2, verse 27. It's in the form of a chiasm. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Using this form, the words Sabbath and man are repeated in reverse order. There's another example on page three. We won't go into it. I just outlined not the entire passage, but essentially the essence of what the passage is conveying in Joel 3, verse 17 to 21. It has seven parts. I'll let you look at it as, uh, on your own time. Often I prepare a lesson, and I usually have much more than I really need. 
Absolutely. Yes. Now, some, some versions of the Bible don't, it's not exactly evident how the editors of that version outline the text. I can rec- we can recognize a poem pretty easily structured, little stanzas. The book of Psalms is an excellent example of Hebrew poetry. There's lots of it in there, and one of the key features of it is, like you stated, is that a balance or symmetry. Every verse or phrase is supposed to be balanced, and we call that parallelism. Pastor Olson. Yes. 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 Great point. The Bible also, in its poetry, is marked by the use of repetition, not necessarily rhyming. That's a key key distinction. It also has a fondness for what's called alphabetical acrostics. So what does that big word mean? Basically, each verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the employment of and also the employment of metaphors and similes. What are they? A metaphor lets one reality stand for another. For example, Psalm 23 verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. It's a simple metaphor. Whereas a simile is a comparison using the term like or as. The psalmist uses a simile in Psalm 22:14 by saying, "My heart is like wax." So when you develop a recognition and a sense of how that language, the original source language of the Bible, conveys these ideas, it helps us understand a little bit more. The Psalms are rich in metaphors for God, frequently for those that portray him as a place of refuge, a shelter, or a protection. In fact, the term rock as a metaphor in the Psalm for God appears 21 times. On page four of your handout, one of the earliest chiastic structures in Scripture. Turn to your Bible to Genesis 2, verse 4. Very, very early on in Scripture. Literally the beginning of the second chapter of the entire book. God's Word says, These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. I broke that structure apart right below that on page four of your handout. The structure is A, the heavens and the earth when they were created. B, in the day that the Lord God made. A, a repetition, mirror image, the earth and the heavens. So when you look at that structure, what strikes you as the primary point of that passage. And if people saw this, that the primary point of the passage is that the Lord God made. The Lord God makes. We can be resourceful. We can make things. We can't create things. We're given those talents and those, those gifts of the Spirit, so to speak, from God, but we can't create. And so the focus right in the beginning of Scripture 
in the first book of Genesis, after the creation narrative in chapter 1, is this summary statement on the seventh day when God rested. And to get the point across, the author says, these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. If we lose sight of our primary focus of theology in the Bible, it's not long before we're taking lots of different trails in places we don't belong. So, any questions? Does that, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Right. But when you see Christ, he used many Hebrewisms in the New Testament. You can marvel, marvel, Simon, Simon, you know, mm-hmm. the, the superlative degree. Stating things twice, but you see that back in the Old Testament. Moses, Moses, and Esther said, if I perish, I, I perish. Right. And things like that. So we see a real connection from the New Testament to the Old Testament. Yes, exactly. And the primary reason, and I agree wholeheartedly with you, is that What were the scriptures that Jesus was using to read and teach from in the synagogues? It's the Old Testament. So it makes sense, and I have a good friend. He's been studying the Bible for many years, but dedicating primary attention to the book of Job for over 30 years. This man has notes and notes, and he could literally write his own commentary on the book. If we are to understand what... Jesus is saying, and what the writers of the New Testament are saying, we have to understand Old Testament theology. We have to go back to the beginning, so to speak. Remember in the the narrative of Genesis, where he created created the man, and God breathed the breath of life into man and transformed his form into a living being or a living soul. This man, he made man, became a spiritual being with the capacity for serving and fellowshipping with God. The translation into our lives all throughout until our Lord returns is this notion of inbreathing. We talk of it in terms of the inbreathing or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of us. Jesus promised that. He said to the apostles in the Gospel of John, I have many things to tell you, but you are not ready to hear them, but I will not leave you as orphans. I will give you the paraclete, the counselor, the teacher. That's the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a little example of how this works, and it's another slight example of how interesting the Hebrew language is. Go, uh, uh, if you have time, Later today or this week, go to the section in Genesis chapters 15 through 17. That's a section that talks about the covenant that God then makes and solidifies with Abraham and Sarah. The significance of the name change for Abraham and Sarah helps us in seeing that the center point of the chiasm is the most important theological point of the passage. What were their names before the covenant? Abram and Sarai. There's no H in there. 
he changed their names to Abraham and Sarah. What does that take? That actually takes, and this is a great picture of when God created man, grabbed a lump of clay, formed into a man, and breathed life into him. The exhaling of breath is necessary to form the Hebrew letter H sound in their name, and that parallels that of the Lord breathing life into man in the garden. So this is God breathing life. It's a sign of the covenant. I'm going to make you a new man. So that name change is significant because you have to breathe out to say Abraham. A little softer way for Sarah, but you're still coming out. That's not there in their initial name of Abram and Sarai. So it's an example of this inbreathing life. There's another example of a chiastic structure in the Bible. It's also found in Genesis. Look at Genesis chapter 49, verses 1 through 27. That should be familiar to all of us. That's the record of Jacob on his deathbed, blessing his sons. It is interesting. I didn't spell that out in your handout. I'm going to let you do a little work to go look at it yourself. But it's interesting that Jacob tells his sons to listen and assemble. He says, ye sons of Jacob, immediately followed by, listen or hearken unto Israel, your father. He starts off, ye sons of Jacob, his name before God changed his name to Israel. It's, it's, it's fascinating to see that. He tells his sons to listen to their father by the covenant name the Lord God gave to Jacob. Verses 3 through 17 denotes the first half of the structure. He's listing his sons by name, and he's giving him, them information about the things to come, what might befall them in the last days. There's the center of the structure, verse 18. And then there's the completion of that passage, verses 9 through 7, 27. What do you see when you look at verse 18? If you're reading through it, it probably has struck you at times when you've read that passage. Here's this passage, Jacob's on his deathbed, going to bless his sons. And for some reason, there's this interesting comment right in the middle of it. And you say, well, what's he talking about? Well, it's an example of the biblical author pointing us to the structure is what the point is. Jacob says, I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. How can you, and you look at what happens to their sons as Genesis unfolds and the rest of the, the Pentateuch unfolds, and you say, well, if they just kept their eye on the prize, <laughs> if we just kept our eye on the prize, it doesn't mean our life is going to be any, be any easier, but it will guarantee that God loves his people and he will bless you. By the way, the word the Hebrew word for bless is the same word for curse. <laughs> so, it goes back to my opening statement. Contact without context has no meaning. If we don't understand the context, we don't understand whether God's blessing or cursing or why. P- 
Page six, there's another structure in the Genesis flood narrative. It spans three chapters, from chapter six through chapter nine. Right in the center of that chiasm, and it's on page six of your handout, God remembers Noah. Chapter eight, verse one. God remembers Noah. Something else, too, that's interesting about the language, a lot of people talk about this. They get on rabbit trails real fast, but they look at numbers, the importance of numbers in the Bible. Those are important, but there's even sort of a numerical mini-chiasm of three numbers, sevens, forties, and one-fifties. It's on page seven of your handout. Starts off seven days waiting to enter the ark. Chapter seven, verse four. That's repeated in a mirror image in chapter 8, verse 12. Second seven days waiting for a dove. Right in the middle of that structure, what's it say? God remembers Noah. (laughs) Again, the author of Scripture is trying to point us to one direction. Point us to him. Like Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You can only come through me. Okay, He's God. That's how we get to know what the right way is. That's how we get to understand real truth. And that's how we get life. So, the Apostle Paul was uh, very fluent in Hebrew and Greek. Probably a few other languages too. But remember, he was a a Jew. He was raised by the Pharisees and instructed. And he actually thought... Before he converted on the road to Damascus, he actually thought persecuting Christians was something he was supposed to do to please God. And then he has this miraculous interaction with Jesus himself. And what happens? He's like, he's incapable of doing anything for days. It's such a profound experience. So he was a master at it. He used those languages to highlight and convey the gospel of Jesus Christ and his narratives to the churches. The book of Ephesians is a good example. It's only six chapters. First half is chapter 1 through 3, second half 4 through 6. The center of the epistle, that's that's a chiastic structure in there, is found at the end of chapter 3, verses 20 to 21 and the beginning of chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Somewhere I have a marker in my Bible. Here it is. So this is what it says. The center of the structure. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory, in the church, by Christ Jesus, throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Immediately, he says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. He has established this chiastic structure in the New Testament using the Greek language. The first half of the book is a reflection of what we call indicatives. In other words, these are factual statements of truth that are indisputable. He talks about um, the mystery made known, being reconciled unto Christ, Christ our peace, redemption by Christ. We are blessed 
with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Those are all statements that are facts. We cannot dispute them. It's true. Whether you agree with them or not, doesn't matter. God sets them forth. He separates that from the second section, which is something that we call imperatives. They're instructions and commands. Also indisputable, and they're also necessary for a good Christian testimony, which is why he starts off, he closes the indicatives with a high doxology, a high praise to God. And then he starts the second half with indicatives, a therefore clause. Therefore, I beseech you, do this. He does the same thing in the book of Romans. It's a bigger book, 16 chapters, but he separates it into two parts, one being full of indicatives and the other of imperatives. Nestled in between, we find a high doxology in chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. What is... What does he do when he greets the churches? What does Peter do when he greets the churches? Grace and peace be multiplied unto you, my brethren, in the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a high doxology. And then the therefore clause, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. It's almost like it wrote in the first 11 chapters, real quick. He's like a prophet. Yes. And then it's in the chapter 12, more like showing the heart of a pastor. Yes. Yes. And the Christian church had to be unified as Christ is the head. Yes. So as you can see the whole transfer from those last three verses that you preached on yes. a few weeks ago. Of him, through him, and to him are all things to God be the glory. Yes. Right into it. It's a high doxology. It's a high praise. Right. I love when you incorporate in your worship service the doxology. It's like what greater thing could we say? Why would we want to, to break ranks and not continue that heartful worship and praise to God with anything else? So, a couple more examples in the New Testament. Paul understood the original languages of the Bible, and he knew how to use their structures to convey the truth of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. It's a huge section of Scripture. It's a simple chiasm. A, 12, 1 through 31, he talks about spiritual gifts. The B in the center, love, the greatest gift. A, spiritual gifts, prophecy, and tongues in chapter 14. Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7 is another example. Um, Sorry, I hit the... Promise not to do that. It's an indication of my passion and how I... So, the final thing I want to talk about, and it should take some more time, maybe God's saying he's going to unfold another time to get in a deeper, maybe he's saying take the handouts. I was up to about 11 o'clock printing. My printer's going, but I love doing that. It doesn't matter. God is the provider of all things, especially when we're conveying his word. There's a marvelous structure in Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. 
Most people look at that and say, oh, this is a passage about the, the attributes of a godly woman. It's all about the woman. And it does talk about that. I've laid it out um, for you <clears throat> in the handout. Starts off, who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies. So you can, you can read that from the handout or from your Bible. I pulled it apart a little bit easier so you could actually begin to see the structure. The type of this is a wisdom poem. It's a marvelous example of the, the, the talent that God has given the author because it forms a chiastic structure, but it's also what we call an acrostic. Lumped in there is the writer using successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet in addition to folding out a chiastic structure with mirror images on the periphery leading to a crescendo in the center. I've been looking at this for at least three years. It's skillfully crafted. It does not describe the wife of a king and is not really addressed to Lemuel. We cannot say that it is not part of the Lemuel text, so it's a separation from the first nine verses. It is part of the canon. Each verse in here is a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's an acrostic, it's chiastic in structure. Either one of these, either one or the other, is actually worthy of sufficient evidence of talking about the poet's skill and the use of the language. But on the, on the, towards the end of your handout, I pulled out the structure. Now, notice, too, that there's a combination of verses that form the ideas. It starts off with a high value of a good wife. All the way at the end, it talks about the high value of a good wife, verses 30 through 31. Look what's right in the center. Public respect for a husband. So, it's not saying this is what you have to be to be a godly woman. Of course, we can say that, but it's really pointing in the direction because the first nine verses is Lemuel's mother telling him how to be a godly king and things to stay away from. And then it says, if you want respect as a husband, this is the kind of wife you should have. The very end, I gave you a real challenge. I pulled out Proverbs 31 in its entirety in the chiastic structure. I gave you on the left side what it is in Hebrew and what it is on the right side in English. To see the acrostic in verses 10 through 31, I highlighted in pink or purple the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Hebrew language is different. It starts on the left at the top and goes that way. We start on the left and go to the right. They start on the right and go to the left. It's even more confusing with Arabic. Arabic starts at the back of the book and then works its way in reverse. A key point about the essence of this passage, and I'll close with this little illustration that's true. 
You all know Martin Luther, one of the great reformers. That time period was fraught with lots of challenges, persecution, anti-godly forces of the Catholic Church, the Romanists, trying to dispute them. So we can imagine in the course of his life and his travels, he might get a little discouraged one day. He's only human. This is a true story. So he gets up one morning, he goes down into his kitchen, sits down. His wife, who is an illustration of the woman in Proverbs 31, she sees him sitting there pouting, you know, going through his antics. Why do I even bother going out through the day? His wife, I think her name was Catherine, she comes in, fixes him breakfast, brings it into him, serves him on the table. She's dressed all in black, completely in black. Martin Luther looks up at her and he says, who died? She says, apparently God did by the way you're acting. Pastor Olson, would you please?